<laughs> okay. series in the book of James, as we want to talk about testing. So, Felisa, have you had any tests recently? Do you, do you like that? You don't, okay. See, some, some, some people look at these, you know, okay, with a little bit of nervousness and trepidation, but some, some see it as a challenge. I want to see how I do. And then there's the rest of us saying, oh man, I just want to get through this day with these, these tests, right? So, but tests are a fact of life. Now, just the other day, Derek had a test. This was a medical test. And boy, that doctor's appointment took forever. But uh, that was a test. Driving down to Bismarck in the weather was a test, and driving back was another test. They're just our tests that we all take. So sometimes we face these tests in life with fear and trepidation if we if we have some knowledge that something's coming up. But you know, a lot of the tests in life just fall upon us suddenly. We don't know they're, they're coming. We don't. So there are academic tests in school. Titus, you even have tests in homeschool, right? You, yeah, sure, you got to, right? You know, every every two years for my commercial driver's license, I have to, well, I get a medical test, that's called my physical, and I have to pass that in order to get a medical card in order to have a commercial driver's license. But then I also have to take a test, retest again for my hazardous materials endorsement. So, But I've done that enough times now, I don't even worry about it. Tests. We don't always, we don't like them always. Tests of skill or knowledge, you know, are the things that we take at school and some on the job, okay? But those are not at all the most difficult or fearsome tests that we face in life. The tests that touch our very soul, maybe our very life, they're a lot more difficult. There are tests like a loss of a job or a business. That can be really tough. There, there's a loss of health, those type of tests, illness. There are financial crises that, that come about. Uh, and sometimes the tests that involve the death of someone very close to us. So, as we approach the book of James, uh, what is it you think of when you think of James? Uh, there's, a, there's a number of, of, of uh, maybe you would even call them 
difficult statements in the book of James that, uh, you know, as we think of that. Like uh, in chapter 1, I should have wrote these down. But in chapter 1, it starts off, Count it all joy when, when you encounter various trials. Okay, we hear that and we say, yeah, but that's really hard to do. And, uh, you know, chapter 2, what's a well-known, how about this one? Chapter 2, faith without works is dead. Okay, what, what does all of that mean? Chapter 3, uh, no one can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil full of deadly poison. That's, that's a sobering and a convicting thought. Chapter 4, Submit to God, resist the devil, or uh, where is oh even even that one at the end of chapter four to the one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it to him it is sin. These some of these things can make us uncomfortable. How about chapter five? Um, how about is anyone sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and have them pray for him. Or even better, what comes right after that? Verse 16, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. But James is a, is a, is a difficult, difficult book in, in some people's eyes. It's, it's often been asserted that, that uh, the epistle of James lacks a, a unity, uh, a unifying theme. It seems that James kind of rumbles on from thought to, to thought without seeming to be going anywhere in particular. Now, I don't think that's, that's true at all. And, and James is one of the books that gets cherry-picked a lot. Now, what do we mean by cherry-picking? Well, it's a, it's a book in the, in the Scripture, especially those in the New Testament, in which we... We know certain uh, verses or, or, or even paragraphs, and we like to go to and, 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 and deal with those, but how that relates to the whole epistle, we maybe haven't figured out or maybe haven't even given it a thought. Now, the book of Hebrews is another one. Boy, it gets cherry-picked. There's great verses in there. But what about the whole book? Well, we'll leave Hebrews to another day. Maybe another year. (laughs) It is. It is. Uh, The assembly in Colorado where Derek is from went through Hebrews. They did. I got in on a few of those messages when I was visiting. Great, great book. But James is much smaller, and, and I don't think it's that hard. I don't. So James is about tests of faith. In chapter 1, faith is tested by trials. In chapter 2, faith is proven through works. In chapters 3 and 4, faith is evidenced by conduct. In chapter 5, faith is experienced through persecution. Now, the book of James is sometimes, uh, especially in chapter 2 there, some people think it's in, in, in an apparent conflict with, with Paul's teaching. But what Paul had to deal with was is, is best seen in Jewish legalism, 
And so he wanted, and, and, and so Paul is, is the champion of justification by faith, and, and the book of Romans uh, is, is just wonderful in that, in that regard. So justification by faith without any works of the law. But James is dealing with a different problem, and this was very early on in, in uh, church history. Uh, that, and, and what James wants to emphasize is that the justified person will demonstrate that fact by the way he lives his life. So, a, a verse in Galatians, and I'll, I'll just read this to you. You don't have to turn to it if you don't want to, but Galatians chapter 5, verses 13 and 14. So here Paul writing says, For you were called to freedom, brethren, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So on the one hand, you had Jews who were prone to legalism, and that was a real problem in the, in the beginning of the church. And we're going to even see some of that in some of the, the verses we're going to look at because we want to get a background to the book of James and, and uh, so I don't know we're not going to get very far into chapter 1 today but we'll, we'll get there but so Paul had to, had, had to deal with that with legalism and law keeping in some regard and this was, this was to be found in Gentile religions too you do some religious acts you follow these steps, you do these things, and then you're accepted by the deity. Okay, And in Judaism, you, you, you keep these things in the law in this way, at least the way they understood it, it was explained to them, and you're good. And when Paul demolished that with justification by faith, when the gospel was understood by them, some went the other way and said, okay, now I am... I am saved, so it doesn't matter what I do. Or I just do nothing. So here, even Paul says, hey, don't do that. Don't do that. Don't use this as an excuse to do what you feel like. But through love, serve one another. So get to the book of James. James chapter 1 and verse 1, and that may be as far as we get today. We'll open up a few after that. But it begins this way. James, a bond servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes who are dispersed abroad, greetings. Okay, we want to find out who this writer is. So the writer of this epistle, and there are a number of James in the New Testament, there were two apostles named James. James, the son of Zebedee, was the first of the apostles of the twelve disciples of Jesus to be put to death for his faith and for the preaching of the gospel. Then there was also James, the son of Alphaeus, or maybe called James the Less in some, some places. Uh, a, common, a common enough name. But this James is not either one of those. This James is James, the brother of Jesus. And 
if if you want to study that more thoroughly, I can maybe suggest some things to you personally in that regard. But um, for our purposes here today, that's not uh, critical to spend a lot of time on that. But let's look at this person of James. And there's, there's surprisingly a number of references to him in uh, the New Testament. So first we're going to begin with Matthew. We want to find out who, who this James is. See what we can find about him. Matthew chapter 13. So in Matthew chapter 13, in verse uh, 55, again, this is, uh, this is about Jesus' visit to Nazareth. And uh, he, cre- he created quite a stir there and uh, uh, was not well received at all. But this is what they exclaimed about him. Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? So if you ever get a Bible trivia test, Titus, remember the four brothers of Jesus. But James is mentioned uh, first, and uh, in in uh, Jewish tradition, that probably indicates that James was the oldest of these four. So you remember, Mary when uh, Mary gave birth to Jesus in Bethlehem, they spent a, sh- a short sojourn in Egypt. Sometime after that, they came back and they settled in Nazareth. But to Mary and Joseph then were born sons and daughters. And it mentions sisters in, uh, in the plural here in verse 56. His sisters, are they not all with us? We don't know how many there were. But they're, and their names are not given to us. But I'm glad at least it gives us the names of the brothers. That's, that's important. Now you can also read this same uh, parallel account in Mark chapter 6 and verse 3. But now turn to John chapter 7. What was it like growing up in a, in a large family of sons and daughters and Jesus is the, is the eldest, but boy, he's sure different than all the rest. Now, I know, I know, Lisa, you've got brothers. Do you, do you have any other sisters? Yeah, okay. And uh, and you've got uh, one, sister. one sister. Okay, yeah. But uh, if, you, if you live in a... Well, I don't know if you... You can't really get that in a small family. Uh, but in a, in a large enough family of brothers and sisters, the firstborn is always a little different than the rest. Uh, they're, of course, always older. They learn things first, so by the time you come along, they look pretty smart, and you're just figuring it all out. Uh, it's kind of nice being the youngest, too, though, isn't it? <laughs> but but uh, older, older brothers, I'm going to say this, can be a real pain in the neck. <laughs> they just can be. Uh, so I had one, okay? But James, chapter 7... Uh, beginning in the first verse, so after these things, you know, remember James 6 is where Jesus gives this difficult teaching to this huge multitude that was following him because many of them were just coming around to see, you know, to see a fight. Are the Pharisees going to get him? Or to see a miracle? 
That's entertainment. Or to be fed. Or just to hear something interesting. Because, remember, this was before the inter- internet, smartphones, or TV. <laughs> so here they were. And so Jesus thins them out by deliberately telling them something he knew they were not going to get. And so it said that after that, many of them did not follow him anymore. And so when he draws aside to the disciples, he says, well, what about you? You're going you're gonna to hang it up? You're going to quit too? And they said, they didn't understand what he said either. But they, Peter spoke for them when he said this. Where else are we going to go? You alone have the words of eternal life. Okay. But things are really heating up for him down there. So he's in, he's in Galilee. For he was unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the feast of the Jews, the feast of booths, was near, and therefore his brothers, this is Jesus' brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, Judas, the four brothers said to him, and they're, and they're saying this kind of tauntingly, sarcastically, leave here, go into Judea so your disciples may see you. See your works, what you're doing. No one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. Okay, we're coming into an old... Well, we're always in an election season, it seems like. But there are presidential wannabes and hopefuls running around, especially in Iowa. They want to be seen. They want to be heard. They want to be known. And so he said, hey, you want to get a following. You need to make some noise. Get out there in public. Show yourself to the world. Verse 5 is what you want to get. For not even his brothers were believing in him. And another scripture tells us they didn't believe in him until after the resurrection. What was it like growing up with an older brother who was wise, uh, kind, gentle? He was never disobedient, defiant, rebellious. That'd be a pretty tough act to follow, wouldn't it? I'm sure it was difficult for Jesus as well. Now, my older brother, you've met him, and I think you've met him too, haven't you? Maybe not? Okay. My brother Randy was uh, bossy and condescending to his younger brothers. And uh, it could be difficult to get along with. And he was always bigger, stronger. You know? You hated to be left home alone when your parents are out and your older brother's in charge. We did not like that. And, and sometimes that didn't turn out well. I remember one occasion they came home and we had broken the kitchen table. I mean, it was down to the floor. My mother was very upset about that. Dad fixed it. <laughs> but it was a matter of chasing each other around the table and finally Randy lunges across it, lands in the middle and collapses the whole table. Okay, but anyway... But my, my younger brother, Kelby, was two years younger than me, but he was bigger than me. Uh, he, 
even about, you know, mid-teens, he outweighed me by 50 pounds. And when I graduated from high school, he outweighed me by 100 pounds. I was 155, and he was about 255. But uh, So Kelby and I would team up to take care of that older brother. <laughs> and now, so... He didn't have the, the courage or, you know, to, to, go, to go into a physical confrontation face-to-face. -face. So I'd do that, and he'd grab him from the side, and the two of us would wrestle him to the ground, and then Kelby would sit on him. That, that weight really came in handy there. And, you know, you pull his nose and pull his ears and tickle him and give him wet willies. You know, we'd do that to him. And then... Let him go, and we'd run. And of course, I could run faster than than Kelby, so I could I could get away. But you know, older brothers can be difficult. But what was it like for these guys? And then there was more to it. You see, they came along later on in in in, in the in the family line. Jesus was, of course, the firstborn. But there's scandal associated with Jesus. You see, mom was pregnant before they got married. And that was thrown up to Jesus a time or two by the Pharisees. But you come along and you say, there, there, there's, some, there's a stigma, a stain on the family, and it has to do with our oldest brother. Okay, And then he's always different than us. Uh, how would you like it if, if, uh, if your older brother or sister was perfect? I mean, perfect. Yeah, it's tough when you compare yourself to them, isn't it? But I, I would bet that they did that. But then we come along to the to the gospel period, and and Jesus becomes this itinerant teacher, and he, he's doing miracles, and. Who does he think he is? That's what they were saying there in Matthew, for example. He hasn't been to any schools. He has no seminary degree in any rabbinical school. What makes him a rabbi? We're carpenters. We're a family of carpenters. We're not rabbis. <laughs> what do you think he's doing? And there was a time even in the Gospels where his mother and the brothers are trying to get an audience with him, and he has been surrounded by crowds. It says that in that context that they hardly had time to sit down and eat. People were coming to him, seeking healing, seeking to hear him, and they wanted, it says, to take custody of him because they considered him to be insane. That's some of the sentiment from the brothers. And James is the oldest there. But then he gave that that reading in Nazareth from the book of Isaiah and he sat down and they're all looking at him and he says now this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing and what who does he think he is they run him out of town and tried to throw him off a cliff but he slipped away now they think well <laughs> good escape there well it's not it's more complicated than that as the oldest in the family, Jesus was it was the family leader, not because it appears that Joseph has died sometime after Jesus' 12th birthday. So he's not there. And 
So Jesus is the head of the family. And we and so he had to re, he really relocated his mother and his brothers had to come along too. And maybe the sisters, but they were perhaps married, but they had to come along too to Capernaum where he set up his new home for his mom. Okay? So Jesus has always been a problem to them. As kids, he's a problem. Now here he is. We we got a you know somewhat stable life. We try to leave that family stigma behind us, and now he 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 makes himself out to be this great rabbi, and he's doing all this teaching. Oh my goodness! So that's where James and his brothers are at. It was difficult, and so they were not believing in him. No, the miracles didn't persuade them either. What did? Well, now turn to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 15. We know that opening uh, paragraph in this great chapter and, and what it has to say about the resurrection, and that's really important to James and his brothers. So in verse 3, says, uh, Paul writes this, For I delivered to you... As of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas in the twelve. Now, Cephas, that's Peter. He was part of the twelve. But even in the Gospels, when when Jesus was first uh, seen in the garden, he says, go and tell Peter and the disciples. We kind of get in a figure we know why he did that. Peter had denied the Lord. He was just feeling lower than a snake's belly. And, and wanting to restore him, he said, go and tell Peter. So he appeared to the, to the Peter and to the twelve. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom re- remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. And we remember that portion. But, you know, I didn't remember the verse that comes after that. After the 500. And then he appeared to James. And then to all the the apostles, meaning again. So James is singled out. And Paul, of course, says, and then last of all to me. But anyway, the Lord appeared to James... And uh, this was, maybe this was necessary for James to get it all together. But now if we turn to the book of Acts, and we try to move along a little quicker here, Acts chapter 1. In Acts chapter 1 and, and verse uh, 14, so the, the, the believers have been told, stay in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes. And so they're doing that. They were with one mind, continually devoting themselves to prayer, along with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. So now James and Joseph and Simon and Judas are there too. Go ahead to the 12th chapter of Acts. Acts 12, in verse 
17. And this is after the, uh, the arrest of Peter. And you remember the angel goes, in, goes to the prison, wakes Peter up, and turns him loose, leads him out. And Peter doesn't even realize till he finally feels the cool night air outside the whole military complex that this wasn't a dream. It really happened. And so he goes to the home of, of, of some believers and they were been gathering there praying and praying and praying. And, and, and uh, he knocks. The servant girl named Rhoda goes to the gate and Peter's let me and, and she's so excited she doesn't open the gate but runs in and says Peter's out there and they said you're crazy you're delusional but he kept knocking they went out and sure enough it was Peter now kind of keep that in mind when we get a little later into chapter one when it talks about prayer these people were praying for Peter but did they really think anything was going to happen they seemed so stunned when God answered their prayers oh that's embarrassing should we ever be like that? But here he is. So Peter's quieting him down in verse 17 and, he, and, and uh, motioning with his hand to be silent. He described to them how the Lord had led him out of the prison. And he said, report these things to James and the brethren. James had become by this time a, a prominent person. In the, in the church. And later on he's identified as one of the elders in the church of Jerusalem. Acts 21. Acts 21. And verse 18. So Paul has gone to Jerusalem and this is the time when he's going to get arrested. So he's arrived, and the following day it says he went in, uh, went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. And here, so James is one of the elders who were present, and Paul has gone in to see, to see them. And if you follow this down through uh, through uh, verse twenty-five, it, you know James and these elders have some advice for for Paul. But here, so here James is meeting with one of the elders. Meeting as one of the elders. Uh, let's go back again to to Galatians as we move forward here, and because James appears again, he's mentioned again in the book of Galatians. So in Galatians chapter one, and this is you know Paul writing here again. He's talking, and he says, so after after that Damascus road experience, after getting saved in Damascus. He went away to Arabia, but then he says in verse 18, three years later I went up to Jerusalem to become acquainted with Cephas, and I stayed with him 15 days. But I did not see any of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In chapter 2, and verse nine, he he also James is mentioned again, and here he is called 
a pillar of the church in Jerusalem. And you see him referred to again in Galatians 2, verse 12. In, in 1 Corinthians 9, yeah, 1 Corinthians 9, another reference to James we want to look at. And in verse 5, and, and Paul is, is arguing here again, he's to, to the Corinthians, and he says, Do we not have a right to take along a believing wife, even as the rest of the apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? So, Jesus' brothers were, were at this time well known to the apostles as men of faith. James is the oldest of that four. And, and they're married men. And so they're in, in traveling and ministering, they bring along their wives with them. Good thing to do. All right. So James introduces himself. So you know, keep in mind this background of James, where he came from. Childhood. Now, as adults and, and Jesus and all the, the turmoil and opposition against Jesus, which then is, is projected upon the whole family, and then his crucifixion and his resurrection. And so James, who once spoke to Jesus with sarcasm, now he calls himself a bond servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, there's a journey. But Paul had a remarkable journey himself. In Romans 1.1, Philippians 1.1, Titus 1.1, Paul introduces himself as a bond servant of Jesus Christ. And he also mentions his apostleship, but bond servant comes first. And every believer should be able to acknowledge and to say, I am a bondservant. I am a slave of Jesus Christ. I am obligated <coughs> to obey him. In 2 Peter 1.1, 1, 1, we, better, we better just turn ahead a few pages because we're close to that. In James, 2 Peter 1.1, 1, 1. Peter introduces himself that way. Simon Peter, a bond servant, and then an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, the brothers of Jesus, James and Joseph and Simon and Judas. Now, that's a Greek name. His, certainly his Hebrew name was probably Judah, but in Greek, Judas, and then shortened in the, New, in the New Testament letter, that short one there right before Revelation, Jude. That's another, that's another brother. So these brothers of Jesus got off to a slow start, but boy, they got there and they were, they were very prominent. In Jude 1.1, he introduces himself as a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. So this is the one who writes this letter. Who is he writing to? They're called here in James 1, 1, to the 12 tribes 
who are dispersed abroad. Now, there were Jewish communities in virtually every major city of the Roman Empire. They extended from North Africa all the way to Rome itself. Now, some of these dispersions, the, the first great dispersions of Jews, of course, happened, you know, 605 B.C. and so forth, and 586 B.C. with uh, first the Assyrian deportation and then the Babylonian and so forth. Uh, and so there were Jewish communities in there because only a small number of those came back to the land with Ezra and Nehemiah and Zerubbabel and so forth. But then there were, there were other persecutions of Jews and they were, Jews were scattered throughout the empire. So he writes to these scattered communities of Jews. And, and this and we should take a we should comment briefly here about the date of this epistle. This little letter of James is the first of all the writings of the New Testament, date-wise, written somewhere between 45 and 49 A.D. So think of it this way: the church is a teenager at this point. It's not even 20 years old when James is writing this. And the church has not yet become predominantly Gentile. Of course, Philip went and preached to the Samaritans real soon after the Spirit came. And in Acts 10, Peter went to Cornelius' house and and preached the gospel to Gentiles. And, And then, due to persecution in Jerusalem, some have gone to Antioch. And that's where Paul is brought in for... Uh, you know, for the first time to uh, to uh, preach to the and teach to the Gentiles, but this is early on in the in in the New Testament church history, and so the church hasn't become predominantly Gentile yet. And so James is writing to to Jews who are believers in Jesus Christ. They're scattered throughout the empire. No. So his letter would have gone out to one place first. We don't even know where that is. And then it would have been copied and circulated on to the next and so forth and passed around. So this is the the first writing of the New Testament, even before the Gospels of Matthew and Luke and Mark. And so he, he writes to them. In... We're going to look at one again here in a couple of verses, just a couple of passages. Acts 8 1. So, and, and this, this, is, this introduces uh, Saul of Tarsus. And so Stephen has been stoned to death, and there we find Saul being a leader of these people. And it says he was in hearty agreement. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Now, the people James is writing to are even further out beyond that. In First Peter, and here's where we get a good feel for this. First Peter 1.1. 1, 1. 
This is, this is who James is writing to very early on in the church history. He's, he, Peter writes, To those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus and Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And he points beyond. So, so, so James is writing to them. Now, James remained in the Jerusalem church. And while we don't have this recorded in scripture, uh, history that we can gather and, and traditions that come down through history say that James was stoned to death by the chief priests in approximately 61 AD. Now, Jerusalem was a very dangerous place to be as a Christian. Even, there were persecutions in various places in the empire, and there were sometimes persecutions in, from Rome as well later on. But Jerusalem was always the worst, most dangerous place to be as a Christian. Even further out into Galilee and Samaria would have been a little better. But Jerusalem was always a hot place. Even during Jesus' uh, preaching and teaching, Judea was a difficult place to go. He spent most of his time in Galilee because of that. But James stayed there. He was, even at the time of the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15, he was so respected in his Christian testimony that even unbelieving Jews who were still holding to the, to, to the law and they were opposed to these Christians... They couldn't criticize James. They had to respect him. He was that remarkable. There's a a reference to him that refers to him as old camel's knees. It is said that he had callous knees from spending so much time in prayer. And the place he loved to go to pray? The temple complex. So James remained there to the end of his days. But here he is writing to Christian Jews that are scattered throughout the empire there who have also been facing some very difficult times. Now you remember when Paul would go to a new place, where do he like to go first? He'd like to go to the synagogue. He would begin there preaching to Jews because they knew the scriptures. They knew the Old Testament scriptures. Surely they ought to see this when he points this out, who the Messiah was. Well, many did believe. But opposition always arose there. And he'd get run out of town. Well, what was it like for the people who lived there? Jews who have believed in the Lord Jesus. And they they still got to live there. Our families are here. Our business is here. Our home is here. Well, things could be really tough. You were put out of the synagogue. You were ostracized by the Jewish community. You had nothing with the Gentile community, though now you knew some Gentile believers that became as brothers and sisters to you, but life was tough. It was tough to run a business when people don't want to do business with you because you're a Christian. You could lose your job. If you were an employee, it could be tough living. So James writes to people who, and, and in, the, in the congregations he writes to, there are a few rich people, but most of them were common laborers and low wage earners. 
and life was tough. You ever identify with anything in that? Life can get difficult. And so he wants to encourage them. And so he begins his letter. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete and lacking in nothing. And we're going to have a lot more to say about that on another time. But he is not saying here, just suck it up and put a smile on your face. He's saying, look at these difficult times that come to you. Now, we all, we all have things that go wrong from day to day or things that are tough from day to day, okay? But they're momentary. But what about difficulties that just hang on for a long, long time? Yeah. So Derek's been struggling with his difficulties for at least five years. It's been very, very significant. The last two years here in this area. Well, that's a long time. It really wears you down. But some difficulties in life just don't go away next week or next month. So what are, what are we talking about here? Consider it all joy. He's talking about our, our attitude. And this doesn't come about when something slams us. We've got to stop and take stock. What are we going to think about this? How are we going to, how are we going to deal with this? Why has God let this happen to me? I mean, sometimes we ask that question. Okay. But then, if we can talk to ourselves, teach ourselves, to gain the proper perspective, these difficulties are opportunities for us to demonstrate our faith. To who? God to ourself and then to others. All of that. So the joy doesn't come immediately. But as we recognize what has happened, we consider what is about us and how we're going to think about that. Then the joy comes. There's been many uh, a very difficult day and uh, some really difficult things are happening. Now we sit down at our dinner table at the end of the day and we're going to give thanks for our food. And sometimes I pray, Lord, it's been a really, really difficult day. And I got a, this call from someone, and bad things are happening. My heart is heavy. But, Lord, I'm thankful that you love me, that you care for me. And that despite all these 
bad things are happening. I'm really glad I belong to the Lord Jesus. And, and the joy begins to come as we focus on these things. Now, the, the problem's still there. The pain is still there. The sickness is still there. And maybe you're still going to die. <laughs> but you can still find joy in the midst of trials. We've got a lot more to say about that later on. Let's bow in prayer, shall we? Our Father, we, we thank you for this little epistle tucked away in our New Testament. And as we study these things and try to come to a, uh, a better understanding of them and, and to remind ourselves of things that we already knew, Lord, we pray you would bring encouragement and strength to our lives the kind of strength that comes from endurance. We know you like that. We know that endurance is commendable in your sight. Lord, may we be those who endure. Help us to remember this this week when the trials come or we're still dealing with one that's been there a long time. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.